In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about water filters. We're going to talk about comms for disabled people on canoe trips. We're going to talk about how to make yourself useful on a canoe trip when everyone else is more experienced than you. We're going to talk about hydrophobic down, yes or no, and also pignut recipes. Welcome, welcome to episode 49 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And yes, it's been a little while since the last one. Combination of being down the rabbit hole with a big educational project that I've been working in the salt mines to finish, as well as when I have been out, it being pretty inclement weather or just not having the right camera gear with me, say on canoe trips and what have you. Um, for the most part of this year, in fact, <laughs> um, we've got to March already, I've just missed the opportunity to record many Aspore Kirtleys, but um, spring is just about here. I'm in the north of England briefly at the moment, and even here where it's quite chilly and nature tends to be a little bit behind much of England, certainly, um, there are signs around here. We've got primroses coming up. We've got opposite leaf golden saxifrage. I've seen a few pignuts starting to come up, which is topical given one of the questions today. There's dog's mercury. There's a few leaves even starting to show on some of the some of the trees. There's a cherry plum blossom down there. So it's starting to feel like nature's coming back to life. And I know it never really dies, but it's starting to feel like things are moving. That said, yesterday there was three inches of snow here. So it's that time of year when you've got cold showers, you've got warm, warmer sunshine, and it's a time that I really like being out. It's also the days are longer. I'm recording this, it's after 5 p.m. in the, after 5 p.m. and um, the sun's still above the horizon there and it will be for a little while. So unlike a few months ago when I really didn't have time to get out for a walk and get an Aspore Kirtley recorded in the same day. Now I'm managing to, well, at least today, it's, it's a nice blue sky, sunshine, and I'm able to get an episode recorded. So without further ado, just to let you know what I've been up to, um, there's always a reason if I'm not making these, something going on. I should also mention there's a couple of really good podcast episodes coming as well on the Paul Kirtley podcast. So look out for those on my blog and iTunes and, and everywhere else that they, they appear. Anyway, first question is about water filters. And yes, it is a bit of a kit question. This is from Richard via email. And his question is, hello, Paul, you've probably mentioned this, but here goes. Water filters. Um, I've used a water to go bottle all spring and summer with no problems, but with Dartmoor, it's no big challenge for a filter. What is your go-to filter and do you change brands in North America for ease of possible replacement of filters or parts? I know it's another gear question, but you get this wrong in the bush and life gets complicated pretty quickly. Indeed it does, Richard, and that's a good question. And I think it broaches what is bushcraft and what is kit because water is something we need every day and we need to be able to source it we need to be able to 
turn it into potable water, drinkable water on a daily basis, or at least when we do produce it, produce enough that's going to keep us going until we can next find some. And so we, even in really remote wilderness areas, um, often, for example, canoe trips, you've got giardia in the water because it's uh, endemic in the beaver population, for example. Um, even in what seem to be pristine environments, you have to be careful with your water. So you always need to be thinking about your water purification and what works in different parts of the world. What are the problems and what are the solutions? And in terms of filters, um, I know you're asking probably about devices, microfiltration, and we'll get onto that in a, in a second, but we should always remember that coarse pre-filtration to remove turbidity. Now, some mechanisms on pumps and gravity filters will do that for you but fine stuff will still get through those gauze filters on the end for example and it will silt up and clog up your filter and some filters can be disassembled they can be cleaned it, it's a bit of a faff but it needs to be done on a regular basis anyway but the more silt going in the more regularly it needs to be done and with um, cartridge-based systems, it can clog the filter much more quickly than the producer, the manufacturer says the capacity of the unit is, and once it's clogged, it's clogged and you have to replace it. So with those systems, it's absolutely critical to get as much turbidity out as possible. And the best way to do that is to use a filter bag. Traditionally, that was a Millbank bag, but now we also have the brown bag, which is a um, a replica, if you like, of the Millbank bag design using exactly the same uh, weave and it does the job very, very well. So you've got visibly dirty water with floating matter in it and you put it through the bag and it comes out relatively clear. It won't remove pathogenic organisms, so we then need to do something else to remove the pathogenic organisms to make that safe to drink. And that's where microfiltration can come in. Um, so in terms of filters, I would uh, suggest some sort of microfiltration that will remove pa uh, the pathogens that are the larger pathogens and particularly the cryptosporidium, the giardia, which are those, that group of microorganisms known as the protozoa and the cyst forms as well that, that are outside of the host body. So protozoa are quite large. They're relatively easy to filter out with some sort of microfiltration system. Um, some of the larger bacteria will get removed as well. And then if you want an absolute bomb-proof system, then use some chlorine at the end. And I know some people don't like the taste of chlorine, but you can use um, a very simple method to remove the taste of chlorine and that is vitamin C. So any drink that's got vitamin C in it, it could be a cordial, it could be a powder, um, that will uh, remove the taste of vitamin C. And if you buy those expensive little tubs of um, taste remover for use with iodine or use with chlorine, all it is is ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. So if you've got a rehydration powder or something that's got some vitamin C in it, then you might as well use that. But the important thing is it doesn't just remove the taste, it also removes the effectiveness of the halide disinfectant, chlorine or iodine. So don't mix it in the same container as you're using to uh, decontaminate the water. Um, probably better, say for example, you filter your water into a bottle, you put the chlorine tablet in, you use the contact time, you flush the threads, make sure it's absolutely clear, it's had the right amount of time, then pour that into a mug, put your powder or your cordial or whatever in there and then drink that and that will taste fine and it leaves your bottle 
um, in the optimum condition for uh, using the chemicals. It also means that you won't have things growing in there. The more sugar and other uh, organic matter food effectively that you put in your bottle, the more likely you are to have things growing in there at some point unless you, unless you flush it out regularly. So again, it's just reducing the chance of stomach upsets from that as well. Um, so microfiltration, part of that process, and that's what you're asking about. And my go-to filters are for a pump filter, the Katadyn pocket filter, which is a bit of a misnomer, but they are a good classic filter, ceramic microfiltration, micro very well made. Not, I, I almost said bomb proof, it isn't bomb proof. You have to be careful with the ceramic part because it can be cracked and which then lets those nasty microorganisms through because they are microscopic and they can get through tiny cracks. So you need to be very, very careful about dropping it and smashing it and those sorts of things. So it's, I wouldn't say it's bomb proof, but in terms of the mechanical parts, in terms of wear and tear, they go on for ages and ages and ages. And I think they're rated to do about 100,000 liters before you really need to replace the filter. They come with a little, um, they come with a little uh, caliper, which you can measure the, the filter to make sure it's still the right thickness because you need to clean it occasionally. That removes material from the ceramic filter and eventually it will become too thin and you'll need to replace it. Um, but they are used by NGOs around the world. They, are, they have a very good, um, there's a strange noise over there, which I'm trying to work out what it is, but there's a lot of noise from the water um, at the moment because there's, as I say, there was three inches of snow yesterday and then it rained. This has all come down into the streams and the stream here, which is normally a trickle, is, is going at a fair pace. It's quite noisy and I'm struggling to hear what else is going on today. So anyway, sorry to get distracted, but um, yeah, this microfiltration, catadin pocket filter, they are quite expensive, but particularly for small groups, they've got a good flow rate. They're not too difficult to pump. Um, personally, I find uh, cheaper models, uh, slow and um, harder to pump and um, they have more plastic on them and have a tendency to break certainly the the pump levers and things so i like the fact that the aluminium and the steel and the the well manufactured the well machined parts of the catadin pocket filters that's my top pump filter um, and in terms of gravity filter my top gravity filter that i really like is the msr gravity works um, there are a number of different gravity filters on the market, but the reason I like the Gravity Works is not only is the ceramic filter which sits in the middle of the system um, rubber, rubberized and therefore shockproofed, um, the whole system has a certain robustness to it. Um, it isn't super, super thin materials on the bags. On the collection bag at the top, it's robust material. It, 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 it's... Um, it's just got a little bit more abrasion resistance and puncture resistance than some of the systems out there. Um, it's easy to see what's going on in the pipes. And then you can uh, fit the MSR Dromedry bags on the bottom. You can put them onto Nalgene's. You can put them onto different size bottles um, at the bottom. And they're good for um, putting at the end of a portage if you go in a couple of times and you can leave them to get the water ready. Or in camp when, you, when you've got time just to let them feed through. That's my, that's my top system. There are other good gravity-fed systems, but I really like the, uh, the Gravity Works. There's no connection. Um, I first bought one when I was traveling in Canada. Um, we used it for a group. We found it really, really effective, and um, I've used them ever since, and I really, really like them. So Catadin Pocket Filter, MSR Gravity Works are my go-to microfiltration units. Hopefully that's useful and give you a little bit of the context of where that fits. And of course, there is more material on 
filtration and water contaminants on my blog at paulcurtley.co.uk. Right, I'm going to stop this camera for a second because I'm on the small camera. All right, next question. This is about comms for disabled people on trips and I know it's quite a specific question but I think if I couch my answer the right way in the right terms it'd be useful to more people because I don't necessarily think there's anything different here um, than there is for anybody else and so therefore it could be useful for all of you I just need to I've got a screenshot here which is a little bit hard to read but the question uh, via Twitter is basically um, as a disabled person planning a solo trip a canoe trip communications are a, an essential lifeline both phone and radio based you have mentioned you carry a sat phone i know different sat phones work in different zones my air and marine radios will only be used for supply drops or for a calculated reason to end the trip due to ill health and here's a question what procedures day-to-day -day would you put in place if you were solo on a trip but with a view of having limited physical mobility to keep a designated person reliably informed or are there any paid for type services I should look at thank you Henrietta well well Henrietta um, I think the fundamental question as I said in the, <laughs> alluded to in the run-in uh, to that question the fundamental answer the fundamental question is the same for anybody um, how do you make sure that somebody is going to raise the alarm come to your rescue affect a rescue instruct somebody else to come looking for you if you uh, if something happens to you on a trip particularly if you're traveling solo and um, that's a conscious decision that you make that you want somebody to do that um, and there are some arguments that some people have for making adventurous journeys without that support network um, and we won't go into that here but for most people it makes sense to leave word in the first place make sure somebody's got a detailed itinerary of where you plan to be and when you plan to be there and that needs to have some margin of error in there because of course depending on the nature of where you're going the terrain is maybe unknown or you know it's within a certain bracket from easy going to tough going water levels can make a difference to whether or not a journey is slow or fast on on water so you need some sort of margin of error that you are you, you're not calling in the cavalry just because you're a little bit slow but equally you don't want the margins to be so big that you're, you you're lying there helpless for days before anybody knows that you're missing so you need to strike that balance and and that I think you have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. You need to look at the risks that you'll face. You need to look at the, the risks that you'll be slowed down um, versus expectations and build a margin around that and then have a margin for maybe you call in every night and every morning. Um, so maybe you have to miss two calls before somebody uh, calls in uh, the rescuers or a search party um, because you might miss um, the evening one because you're late you might have bad connectivity whatever means of communication you're using and it might be worthwhile that you wait till the next one then whatever that is as long as you know what the plan is you know then how long it's going to be before somebody starts looking at you and that can inform the decisions that you make on the ground in terms of how you deal with your situation 
um, how much you invest in different activities to make yourself safe or warm or visible or whatever it is versus how long you think you're going to be there and part of that equation is how long is it going to be before somebody realizes that you're not in a good condition that you haven't called in that something's gone wrong and that they should then go and search the route that you were on um, so there, there is there is that and I think the simple methodology is to, to come up with an agreement with a responsible person that you will contact them at designated spots so it can either be geographical places or it can be temporal spots that you say I am going to let you know that I'm safe in the evening in the morning in the evening in the morning and if you don't hear from me twice then something's gone awry that would be one way of doing it but there are there are several others in terms of communication technology, um, yes, I do use a satellite phone in some circumstances, but that is where I'm very remote. Um, so I, I don't use a satellite phone in the UK, typically. Um, but in terms of canoe trips, I would take one with me when I'm with clients, when we're guiding clients in Canada. Um, we take a satellite phone with us, and that's my satellite phone, and I've got multiple spare batteries for that, um, some of which are kept purely for emergencies um, because there are circumstances where people go to their mobile phone their, their satellite phone which has been kept for an emergency somehow it's been turned on or it's been used and been left on the batteries flat and then even though you've got the communications device for an emergency you don't have the means to uh, to call in equally if you're calling in every day you're going to run the battery down eventually and if there is then an emergency and you need to stay on the phone to guide people into you or to speak to a medical professional, to speak to a doctor perhaps, um, you need that battery capacity to have that elongated conversation. So having a reserve battery purely for emergencies, for um, mishaps with charging, mishaps with battery, uh, battery flattening, and just to have in case you need to have an elongated conversation in case of emergency that's another thing to do so have some redundancy in your batteries versus what you think you might need and so that's something we do but we don't always do that some places uh, i travel there is even though they're wild and they are remote they have sufficient mobile phone coverage that I'm happy to rely on mobile phone. So for example, in the north of Sweden, um, where we do uh, some winter trips, some fr friends and I do winter trips, um, there is good mobile phone reception in those areas that we go to, even though they are, it's, we're well within the Arctic Circle, we're out in the forest, we're a long way away out from any habitation, um, we get a decent phone signal. Um, and so it just depends, you, you have to look into what's what do you need versus what are your um what do you need to ensure that you are able to communicate with the people you need to communicate with and what's your budget um spot devices can be useful as well in terms of allowing people to track your progress that's another option to look at so that they can see where you are you might want to combine that with calling in just to say that you're okay um, but the the some of the spot devices have the ability just to press a button that says i'm okay as well as to press the red big red button <laughs> that calls in the uh, that calls in thunderbirds so there are a few different options there to look at depending on depending on uh, what you want to do one of the advantages of of voice comms though as i've alluded to is that you can have an elongated conversation so you know with some technologies it, it's either i'm okay or come get me um, doesn't really it's kind of binary doesn't really leave you a lot of leeway in the middle of, about i'm not feeling well or um, i've injured myself in this way 
um, I need to speak to a doctor about you know my my uh, my prognosis over the phone that can be something um, that can be valuable in certain circumstances so you need to think about that so in a nutshell make sure somebody has a very good idea of where you're going to be make sure somebody is going to be monitoring whatever comms you're using make sure somebody is left with very very clear instructions as to when uh, to call in the cavalry but make sure there is a little bit of leeway in your plan so that they aren't calling in somebody to rescue you just because you're a little bit late or you didn't get good reception and then think about the type of communication you want to have whether it's just I'm okay come rescue me or whether or not you want to have a more nuanced uh, uh, communication ability than that and it doesn't really matter whether you're uh, whether you're uh, disabled, um, I don't know the I don't know your exact circumstances. Um, doesn't matter where you are, whether you're disabled, whether you're fully able-bodied, whether you're on your own, or whether you're a small group. I would say it's exactly the same, exactly the same framework for all of that. Um, assuming that you want to have that um, safety net of somebody coming to get you should something happen. Um, that that's my uh, that's my overall thinking on that. Um, I've got one final thing I would say is as well what you, if you're going to be offshore because again I don't know the circumstances of your journey if you're going to be offshore at all or on large bodies of water you might even want to think about having an EPIRB on you um, which is activated when you fall into the water like you might have if you're on um, on a sailing vessel for example right well that's the end of that question I can see the batteries getting low I'm on my small camera today so I'm going to have to change the battery and I'll be back with the next question Okay, battery changed. Back with the next question. Another canoe trip question, but people are planning canoe trips for for the year, um, and I know of a, I know of some good canoe trips that are going on at the moment, and some other big canoe trips that people are doing um, through the year. Some really quite special trips some people are doing this year, but we've all got canoe trips in, in the offing. Those of us that are are uh, fond of a paddle and uh, it's it's the time of year to be thinking about it and getting things organized um so this is a question via the contact form on my blog this is from scotty b and he's just found my podcast and instagram um, and other channels recently and he's liking my stuff which is fantastic he lives in saskatchewan home of moore's Chansky or Kahansky, however you like to pronounce it. And um, he says, I've been studying bushcraft for the last year or so. I have a canoe camping trip planned on the Churchill River in northern Saskatchewan in the planning phase. I will be going with a few of the friends who are much more knowledgeable in the areas of canoeing and backcountry camping than myself. This isn't my first experience with this type of adventure. And I'm fortunate enough to have surrounded myself with a group that can teach me a lot. My question is, what are some lesser focused upon skills that I could provide to the group to feel as though I am contributing something meaningful? We already have a chef, a nurse and two avid outdoorsmen in the group. Thanks and keep on doing what you're doing, my friend, Scott. Cool. Well, thank you, Scott. That's a good question. Um, and 
I think, you know, the, 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 the context of group dynamics and group roles has come up in different ways on this show before, but not in that particular form. And um, yeah, how do you make yourself useful on a trip where you already have some capable people? Well, I would first say before we kind of go down the, the route of looking for esoteric things that they've never thought of that you can bring to the table, I, 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 would, I would question your question in the sense that I think the fundamental question is how you can be useful as a group member on that trip. Um, that might mean bringing new skills to the table, but it might just mean reinforcing the skills, the core skills that you need for the trip, which maybe everybody already does have, but that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't have them as well, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be practicing them uh, while you're on the trip to gain more experience yourself, rather than going off and doing something around the edges of the core of what you should be gaining more experience in. Um, and for me, whenever I'm on a canoe trip with other people, whether I'm with friends, uh, with colleagues, uh, guiding customers, uh, whatever the situation, um, when, when you're in a relatively small group and you're camping in the wilderness, everybody needs to pull their weight in camp. And there's a few things that I would suggest that everybody needs to do. Um, everybody needs to take about the same amount of time to sort their personal gear out because otherwise what ha tends to happen is Fred goes off to sort his gear, gear out in his you know, hammock in his tarp or his tent or his whatever he's using and he takes three times as long as everybody else. The other jobs like collecting firewood, putting up a group tarp, um, unpacking the food or, or all those sorts of jobs get done by other people and if Fred's consistently slow with his basics then everybody else is is carrying him with the group jobs. So the first thing I would say is get your personal admin sorted so that you're quick and efficient when you're setting up. Now, different people have different um, organization at camp. Sometimes people like to sort of bomb burst to start off with. Everybody goes and sets the personal stuff and then come back and do the group. Some people like to do a bit of group, maybe get um, a fire going, get some water boiling, that type of thing, and then run off uh, to, uh, to or, or we talked about gravity filters earlier on, for example. Maybe you want to start running some water through a filter and then you go off and set your tent or your tarp or what have you up and then you come back and then you carry on. So you need to agree with your colleagues, and I'm sure you will, um, what the plan is. And then you need to take about the same amount of time with your personal gear at whatever time you're doing that, both in the evenings and in the mornings, so that they're not carrying you with the basic camp jobs or you're not carrying somebody else with the basic camp jobs because it isn't always necessarily the most inexperienced person who ends up being the slowest so you've got that to think about as well but I would say first off make sure you've got your kit organized and you know where it goes how it sets up all of those sorts of things um, then the basics are the basics the things that really need to be doing fight you know if you're cooking on fires or using fires, you need to get firewood, you need to saw that up, maybe you need to split it, somebody needs to light the fire. Um, are you going to put a group tarp up? Then, you know, it's easier with several people maybe than, than, than one. 
Um, do you need to be sort collecting water? Do you need to be putting it through a filter? All those things need to be done and need to be done efficiently. Make sure you're producing enough water for the next day rather than just doing the minimum that you need to in camp before you collapse into your, your sleeping bag. So there's lots of basic jobs that need to be done every day before you th start thinking about anything esoteric. And, and yes, if you've got a good cook, they may take the lead in all the cooking. But I can tell you, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a reasonably good campfire cook. Um, I have other colleagues who are good cooks as well and whoever's taking the lead with the meal it's so so appreciated if somebody can just help take the strain particularly if you're having to um, you know manage the fire and and whatnot if, if somebody can manage the fire while you manage you know you know, cooking if, particularly if you're cooking from first principles you know you're putting the onions in and then the, you know other ingredients and stirring it and making sure things don't burn I mean yes you can manage the fire as well but what really 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 is appreciated if somebody can help with the prep you know you're cooking maybe for six people that's you know six lots of different things that you need to prepare um, you know veggies um, whatever it is if somebody can just help just dicing up some onions or, or or what have you just getting things ready so that you can then be getting them into the dish cooking preparing uh, the food that's super super helpful if somebody can go off and drain the pasta or, or whatever it is rather than you having to run around and manage all of those things and keep all those plates spinning so yes there might be a super super good chef in your group but if you can be really good support to them by always um, making sure that they've got what they need when they need it that's super super appreciated trust me um, the other and, and you'll learn about the cooking as well if you if you think you're not such a good um, campfire cook by teaming up and helping and supporting somebody who is you're going to learn a lot as well so that's something i would recommend and then also there's just you know the if you're not doing the cooking then do the washing up you know just naturally don't wait for somebody to ask just go you know okay you guys cooked um me and jimmy will go and do the washing up and then or you know you guys cooked you guys did the washing up we'll go and sort out making sure the barrels um, or the bags are up and away from from, bear, from camp and from bears. So you divvy up those jobs like, like that. Um, you know, just all those basics, just make sure you're there and you're supporting the group and you're not just letting them carry you. And then of course, you know, the more medical skills you've got are useful in, in case of emergency. Um, navigation skills are always useful. Um, you don't want to be arguing with who's ever taking the lead, but just being able to navigate strongly, the more people in the group who can navigate well, the better, particularly if it's a group effort. Those things, those things are good. Um, there are often people who are experienced travelers who are not necessarily very good with their firecraft, for example. So if, you, you know, if you're interested in the bushcraft side of things in particular, really get your firecraft good. Make sure you can light a fire with small, you know, small sticks and birch bark feather sticks and and get get it you know can you drop a spark onto feather sticks in damp conditions and get it to go you know really really make sure that whatever the conditions on that trip you're the guy who can get the fire going again super super helpful it's not esoteric it's not around the edges it's core it's in the middle um, and that's super 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 useful 
Also, if you can take the opportunity to um, get some training in rescue drills before you do the trip, if it's not something that you're familiar with, you know, what do you do when a, when a canoe capsizes? Can you get back into a canoe when it capsizes? Practice with your friends, um, maybe at the beginning of the trip or, or before the trip. Um, you know, if you have a warm day to train on, you know, train if one of the canoe capsizes is going to help your mates because however good and experienced they are, they may fall in. So what do you do if you, you know, if you're paddling tandem, you're in there with a friend, with a canoe partner, another boat's gone in, they've got hold of the boat, what do you do to help them rescue the boat, rescue them, get them back in the boat? Make sure you know those things as well. Um, and again, it's core, it's core. So I would, as I say, question the question in the sense that I think the core question is, what are the real key things that I need to know as part of the group? Make sure that you've got that there, even if it's in support role to the lead, whoever you think is the lead person with that. And then make sure you've got all your core skills, use backup to them as an opportunity to learn more and uh, be the fire guy if you can, particularly if you're interested in the bushcraft skills. And that's what I would recommend. That's what I would recommend. Um, don't know if you've got a good singing voice, but you know, somebody, you know, some people hate singing around the campfire, but somebody with a good voice who can sing a few songs and, or learn a few good jokes, whatever, you know, all those things help in, in, on a journey. Um, having a good sense of humor, throwing a few jokes in there when things are getting a little bit grim, that's always helpful as well. So I would recommend that and culture, uh, cultivate a positive mental attitude at all times if possible. And have a great trip. Let me know how you get on. Okay, how are we doing for time on that one? Right, I'm going to stop that little camera. I'm just going to shut off in a sec. Hydrophobic down, yes or no? Question is from Peter Golivan or Golivan. Apologies if I pronounced that incorrectly. Um, so he says, hi Paul, after watching your lightning the load video, I searched and found an affordable down sleeping bag. The company offers hydrophobic down as an option. I looked around to gauge whether the surcharge would be worth it, but I can't find a conclusive answer. In your opinion, is hydrophobic down a marketing gimmick or is it worth it? The sleeping bag would use, uh, would see use, sorry. The sleeping bag would see use on multi-day backpacking trips in all seasons, both in tents and under tarps. Would it materially help against condensation resistance, drying times, etc.? Thanks for all you do. Sorry for the kit question. All the best, Peter. All right. Um, short answer is yes, it would help uh, in terms of moisture uh, uh, avoidance, in terms of moisture being soaked up by the down. Um, the, the most experience I've had with hydrophobic down is a hydrophobic down jacket, which I've used under various circumstances, some of them pretty extreme, some of them pretty grim, um, in fairly cold yet somewhat damp conditions in the Norwegian mountains, for example. And I found it to be particularly good compared to regular down, I have to say. Um, the idea is that the down just doesn't soak in, as, for those of you that don't know, doesn't soak in as much moisture. It's treated so that it's hydrophobic. It's, it, 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 uh, doesn't, it's frightened of water is a literal translation, but that isn't really what's going on. Um, so it, it, it just repels water, let's put it that way. It doesn't soak it in as, as easy. If that's combined with a good Pertex shell or something which again doesn't allow water to be soaked in because some super lightweight sleeping bags these days 
the, the, the outer material and the inner material, as soon as you sweat or there's a little bit of condensation, say between a sleeping bag and a bivy bag on a cold night, that soaks straight into the outer material or the inner material, depending on which way it's coming, and then that wicks into the down as well. So a good, a good slightly thicker shell layer, not too much, you don't want to be too heavy of course, being a down bag, but you know, a good, a good Pertex um, outer that has, uh, or similar that has um, some water repellency and the combination with hydrophobic down is a fantastic combination. It certainly reduces the amount of water soaked into the bag and there of course, that of course then means there is uh, a reduced drying time. So yeah, if particularly if you're going to be in non-freezing conditions, but where they can be relatively cold and you're going to get condensation or where you're going to be in some conditions where you may be a little bit warm and you put too much moisture into the bag um, at certain times of the year the hydrophobic down will help and the surcharge you're talking about it sounds like 30 euros difference just reading the question there i would go i would spend the extra 30 euros it's about 15 percent by the looks of it on top of the price what you're going to spend anyway um that that's what i would do Last one, I think we can fit this in. Pig nut recipes. This is a question from a little while ago from Jamie Dakota um, under the name of Howell Bushcraft via Instagram. Nice visual question. Um, I've seen quite a few pig nuts around today. They're certainly around at this time of year in the UK, starting to come up. If you don't know what a pig nut is, there are articles, in particular there's an article on my blog. Um, you can find that at paulcurtley.co.uk. And um, it's in, the, it's in the carrot family, but the tuber, the underground tuber, which is edible, doesn't look anything like a carrot or a parsnip or any of those uh, tapered roots that uh, many of the members of that family have. It's a small, bulbous, quite rounded uh, root um, tuber. That, so there's a little root that runs down, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and then you've got this little um, bulbous bit at the bottom, which has the consistency of, um, somewhere between a, a, a sweet chestnut and a radish. Um, certainly with that crunch, it's got good flavor. And they can be quite small from sort of pea size, marble size, um, often resemble hazelnuts around the marble size. When they get a bit bigger, they've had a number of stems on them and they start getting little spikes on them and they look like a World War II um, marine mine, a shipping mine with little spikes on the side. Um, all of them are edible, all of them are tasty. Like you, um, Jamie, with your question, and I'll read Jamie's question here now that you, you know what we're talking about. Um, I'm getting so much from your tree, uh, I, tree and Plant ID Masterclass. Highly recommend it to those wanting a deep and practical knowledge of trees around them. Uh, my question is the humble pig nut, I've always eaten it raw out of the ground. Do you have any recipes or ideas for including in a meal? I've not cooked them before and wondered if you had any suggestions to get the culinary juices flowing. Kindest regards, Jamie. Well, um, you understand why I needed a little run in there, so just to make sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, Conopodium magus, pig nut. Um, like you, Jamie, I've eaten them largely raw because they're one of the few for me, spring foods that you've got easily accessible carbs that you can basically dig out the ground and you can eat straight away. Um, I've done survival foraging exercises where I've got no other food with me. I'm living off the land for several days and um, there was nothing better than 
taking my metal mug, half filling it with pignut <laughs> tubers and just eating those for breakfast, um, just crunching through those. And the, the, the energy was really sustaining. And so um, there isn't, for me, there isn't as much motivation to cook them, I have to say, as some uh, wild edibles that really benefit from processing and cooking to improve the flavor or improve the release of energy. That said, most carbohydrate-based uh, foods that have anything other than simple sugars benefit in terms of energy release from you cooking them. Just think about eating um, raw pasta versus cooked pasta or raw potato versus cooked potato. Um, there is more energy release from the starch if you cooked it, it's easier for you to digest. Um, so yes, I have cooked them, I've put them into stews. So where I've been cooking up a stew where I might put carrots and parsnips in, for example, I've put pignuts in, but I haven't got any more elaborate or inventive than that, to be honest with you, because they work well like that. They give a bit of crunch, they give a bit of flavor, um, they bulk it out a bit in the same way that say chopped parsnips might. Um, I know some people don't like parsnips, they don't taste like, pignuts don't taste like parsnips, but in the same sort of, there's, there's something for your teeth, um, something to chew, there's, you've, you benefit from the energy. Um, that is as, as inventive as I've got with pignut recipes, I have to say. Um, I've not made, I, I, I would imagine you could probably make quite a good sort of puree or something from them in the same way as you can make a chestnut puree, but I never, I never have done. Um, so maybe that's one for me to play around with this spring as well and we can compare notes. So that is that. So um, try it in a stew if you haven't done, Jamie. Um, but other than that, we'll have to experiment and um, compare notes. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, I know I've said this before, I am gonna try and keep these fairly consistent going forwards. Um, certainly with longer days and more clement weather, I should be able to get more of these recorded in the coming weeks and months busy few months coming up with with courses with programs with my own personal trips and uh, then we also have the bushcraft show and for those of you that have been saying that i should do another live ask paul kirtley at the Bus bushcraft show this year i will be doing a live ask paul kirtley on the main stage of the bushcraft show where i'll be answering questions live to the audience. We will of course record that as well, but it would be fantastic if you're gonna be around anywhere close uh, the last weekend of May, the May bank holiday weekend, if you're going to be at the Bushcraft Show, come to the live Ask Paul Kirtley session. I also have a slightly competitive streak which make where I want to make it the most popular session of the weekend. I've got some stiff competition, but that's not going to deter me. Um, so if you are thinking of coming to the Bushcraft Show, I'll have more details about what we're doing. We're going to be there all weekend. Um, I'm doing a main stage talk as well on a different day, but I've got the live Ask Paul Kirtley as well. Ray Goodwin's going to be there doing a, doing a talk as well from our team at Frontier Bushcraft. And we're going to have a stall. Spoons is going to be there. Henry's going to be there. Ian's going to be there. Some of the rest of the team are going to be there. And we hope to see you there. But if you're going to do anything, come to the Ask Paul Kirtley session and ask a question or just, you know, heckle from the back um, uh, in, a, in a friendly way. And uh, I'll see you then. More details to come, of course, but Bushcraft Show last weekend of May, live Ask Paul Kirtley with a big audience. Scary for me, fun for you. And uh, that brings us to the end of the session. Take care. Enjoy the spring wherever you are. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, enjoy the autumn. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, Take care. Cheers.